This is Insight with Roz, a radio broadcast brought to you on podcast by I'mJustSaying.com, independent of the good opinion of others. Hello, I'm Roz. Thanks for joining me on Insight, where we look at life in 3D and tackle the tough topics, all through the prism of hood feminism. My special guest is Shane Snow, a white upper-middle-class man, truly prep school and all, a life of privilege, wealth, opportunity and authority. At the same time, it is a group denigrated as snowflakes or demeaned as those loose liberals, people who are progressive in their views. It's a group that Martin Luther King saw as the barrier to racial equality. Are they malignant or magnificent? Shane belongs to a set who has it all. Right? Discover with me an upper middle class reality. So Shane, thank you so much for being here with me on Insight. Welcome to the programme. Thank you, Rose. It's been a long time and it's uh, it's exciting to be here. <laughs> you might change your mind. Don't ask me any difficult questions that make me feel uncomfortable. Oops. Now, you know, this is the show where we tackle the tough topics. And you are one of the people I've wanted to speak to, because in many ways, if we look at who you are and what you represent, many things may be laid at your feet. So this is your chance to actually say, hey, that's them, not me. So first of all, so let's kick off, Shane, by you telling the listeners who you are and what you do. So I am a white heterosexual, partially Christian, Church of England, public school educated uh, male, born in North London, went to boarding school in Dorset, travelled in South America, and then joined the civil service environment and then moved to transport. And now I work on um, the project to transform Britain by building a high-speed railway and working to kind of make a new transport corridor work for local people by delivering kind of legacy benefits for local communities through um, what I call paths for everyone, which are basically traffic-free places where people can walk their dogs, go on a mobility scooter, go on a bike, or just go for a jog or a walk. Mm, Shane, did you hear that noise in the background? No, I didn't. It was hissing. (laughs) It was hissing (laughs) when you spoke about High-speed transport? <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, like, if you're... Okay, here's, here's the thing, right? As a kid, you know what I used to do in the morning? I used to get up in the morning um, in my bedroom and I used to get, like, Lego and I used to construct transport systems. And so in transport is my kind of... is a kind of dream, transport planning, but also... I was a kind of environmentalist. My, when I met my first girlfriend, basically, she, she brought me into environmentalism. So transport is all about the environment, really. It's like, how do we let people move and visit, um, relatives get to work, get to education, um, but also not mess up the planet? Big challenge. Yes, indeed, a big challenge. And you know we're going to get to that. But I find <laughs> all the things that you said about what makes you who you are you would be in that category that is so neatly identified as upper middle class, and you really are, because you've had all those things that one tends to associate with a middle class and an upper middle class upbringing. So would you accept that? 
Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I would uh, definitely say on the outside, I am um, definitely uh, from the upper middle class demographic. My great grandfather was a general in the army. My grandfather was a brigadier in the army. Uh, my father kind of rebelled and um, went into television. Um, and on my on my mother's side, my grandfather was a kind of merchant trader in uh, India in tea. He was a tea broker. My mother um, was a housewife. She never um, she was of a demographic that expected to get married and not to work. So in in that sense, yes, yeah. On the outside, I would say I have all the trappings of what you might call privilege. Might have. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You've got, so you, you, you got privilege. I got privilege. I got a lot of privilege. However, I want to say that childhood matters. And um, my parents got divorced at six. And it gave me a very, very um, different perspective uh, on life. And it made me feel within a family system, within two family systems, very much an outsider. So a lot of stuff that you get in group dynamics, a lot of the stuff that you get when you talk about race and in-group, out-group, them and us, I, I do have a real empathy for that and, and a feeling of the underdog because I felt um, very disadvantaged by my parents' divorce when I was six years old. I know I'm, I'm you know, many years later, I've got to get over it. No, no, you don't. But it's had a very, very profound effect I think on my politics on my outlooks on what it is to be English versus what it is to be North American um, a lot of kind of conflicts and things go on for me in that space. Children are born ready to learn and children's brains are in that fader stage also known as the reptilian stage just absorbing information and so children can absorb stress and trauma and they have a long-term impact on our lives body, mind and soul. So that six-year-old matters then and now. I am never, ever, ever dismissive of childhood experiences. They shape us and what problems we have in later life, indeed how we even deal with those problems in later life. So never, never underestimate how important that phase of our life is. And I just want to say, I want to add one other thing in a, a different angle, which is there was a time in my life as a white man where I was really angry about my rights. Um, it was to do with um, the rights of a father over children and the fact that I had children. I wasn't married. Um, I was in a very difficult position. And I remember going to a lawyer and this law the lawyer's first question was, are you married? And I said, no. And she said, well, you've got no rights got to go to court to get your rights enforced. And that for me was a real shock. Um, and through that experience, it's like, you know, I suffered divorce as, as a young kid. Um, my kids suffered um, really bad separation between me, my wife and I. Um, and in that process, I had a lot of experience of the police, of social services, um, from a male point of view. And it was pretty uncomfortable because there's a presumption well, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of presumptions and stereotypes about you as a, as, as a man and as a father. I think things are a lot better now. I think the, the world has moved on a bit. 
But um, you know, back then um, there was Fathers for Justice. There was a there was a more moderate group called um, Families Need Fathers. So again, that experience has really influenced me and my attitude to sort of you know how if, if you like e- even on the outside when you look at me, you know, I, I've had my own struggles definitely. I wouldn't suggest that having privilege means that the bearer doesn't have life struggles. But unearned privilege, or to use the Latin privilegium, is about the benefits enjoyed by a few that's not available to others. And in the case of race, it's the unearned advantage that a dominant group has over the marginalised groups, some of which I know you can empathise with. But we seem to have gone straight into the conversation. Let's, <laughs> let, let's step back a little bit. This is what happens when you speak to lovely people. So let's step back a little bit. Somebody like you who has sympathies with social causes, what we call the snowflake. And on the other hand, and I'm going to go straight to Martin Luther King, he said the Negro's greatest stumbling block is basically the white liberal, somebody like you. And he says that because he believes that the white liberal was somebody who was, and I'm quoting King here, was more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. King said that in the 60s. And what do we find in southwest of Baltimore in the 21st century? White liberals... Obama voters protesting the desegregation of schools. They're doing it in person with death threats and hate mail, which reads, blacks destroy school systems. So those are the examples. How do you feel about those labels, snowflake and fake liberal? Because you will be called snowflake for your sensibilities on one hand. So my surname is Snow, so I used to be called Snowflake at school. Um, so uh, I can take that. I, um, I think we need to be quite careful what we mean by um, liberal. So um, there's some aspects of liberal um, ideology taken from the Enlightenment, which I think are really important. The notion of progress, the notion that we're trying to make the world a better, happier place where people can flourish. I, I will defend that as a, a, a as an objective. Um, I think stuff like being unaware of of difference. It's for me. It's been a bit of a journey. So definitely, as a teenager, um, kind of coming from North London, I tried to much tell myself that colour didn't matter. That I was colour blind. Um, but then I was in situations where I definitely felt my colour, and I was challenged. Um, by um, black people. Um, I remember in, in the Pompidou Centre in Paris, um, there was a black rights activist and he, he selected me from the crowd and uh, I tried to defend the fact that I wasn't racist and I didn't believe um, in difference in colour. And, um, you know, he told me I was and I thought that was very unreasonable. But now I have an understanding um, or an awareness that I, I, I do think peop- we need to talk about Colour, I think it's, as a white person, I find it um, not so comfortable. But also, um, I what I really don't like about maybe some of the critical theory is the idea that there is only one way um, and that you kind of um, 
no platform to um, dissent. I mean, I really don't like that idea. I think I, I believe in a politics and a, de a democratic process where everyone has a voice and we, we deliberate and we discuss and all views can be aired. And then we come, we try and come to a consensus to move forward. And that is real. Um, you know, when we come to a consensus, that's where we have power. Um, and that's going to be uncomfortable always because everyone's got different views. Um, but we need to be able to have that dialogue and sort of saying that we can't talk about some things is just very, very oppressive. And again, you know, it takes me back, for me, it takes me back to a kind of family situation where, um, if you like, in the family system, um, everyone has to be happy and go along with things on the surface. But then underneath is that sort of real kind of... Um, anger resentment that never gets expressed and then you get the um you know you get things like scapegoating and um you know sort of the groups so the group there's the, there's the awkward person in the corner or the scapegoat and really in in a functional system everything conscious and unconscious needs to be aired um, and we need to recognize you know as, as people and this is where i think the enlightenment is very naive is that we're not just rational we're also irrational you know, we, we have an unconscious um, brain, a mammalian reptilian brain or whatever, and that's all part of us. And we need to kind of um, accept, embrace and, 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 and deal with it rather than deny. I think there's a lot of, you know, the rationalists, the liberals maybe um, deny stuff um, and um, we need to get over that and we need to have those conversations. I'm not speaking to neoliberalism, right-wing conservatism in disguise. So... I share your perspective on liberalism. But that doesn't touch on what King referred to, that liberalism is a facade. Clearly, we like the idea, but when it comes to the actual practice of liberalism, dividing the authority, it's a case of, mm, we're not sure about that idea. So Shane, where do you stand on the reality of equality, meaning that authority, power, and right have to be shared amongst us. Would you be prepared to advocate that we need to share what we have? So for me, certainly resources need to be shared. And in a better world, there would be more equitable distribution of um, resources and benefits, whether it's life expectancy, health, uh, or material benefits or access to education or whatever. That would will be shared but the notion of a right is something that it, it, it's something sort of fundamental to the individual and there is something about the sanctity of the individual and and so when we come to liberalism that's why i think liberalism can be quite an unhelpful word because there's sort of there are notions of economic liberalism which is just let the market do everything which um i don't think necessarily works very well that's neoliberalism, which is not really liberalism at all. In terms of power, nobody will give up power easily. So there is a legitimate discussion um, and there are tensions within any, any, any group about who has power and how it's distributed. I, I like the Hannah Arendt idea that basically we are at our most powerful when we have an inclusive um, deliberative process to reach decisions and everyone can play a part in that um, and then and then we come to a consensus and that means you know when you, you often you disagree with the decision but you go along with it um, and but that's a powerful community and everybody is involved in the decision making um, there are other notions of power like you know Marxian idea where power is about uh, struggle and 
in, inherent um, conflict between class. And I think when it, com when it comes to resources um, or dealing with global problems, there are some, some sort of very difficult issues and, and you only really get solutions where there's some sort of um, fair redistribution. Sorry, does that make any sense? It makes absolute sense, but it, it seems to be a wider argument. So what I want to hone in on is this idea of race and the fact that the people who have the authority, because I think as individuals, power rests with us. But yeah. I think what we do is we give people authority to do things. So... Our current prime minister, he's been given a mandate because he said this is what he'd do. The people gave him the authority to do it. So as somebody who is in a privileged position recognises it, that doesn't mean that you don't have problems in your life. Would you be one of the people willing to sparehead the change that sees a more equal system for black people. You see, I don't think meritocracy is the way to do it because at the very beginning, the moment you start to talk about merit within education, you've already got disadvantages to who you were born to, the access to the type of schools, the area you were in. So are you one of the people that be willing to look at opening up this whole debate as to how we fairly get black people to have a full role and women in society yeah yeah i mean i think it's i mean if that's when we talk about um diversity and inclusion in the civil service and the debate has definitely been turbocharged by black lives matters so let's make no bones about it um it is about how we can give more opportunity to new demographics to get into positions of senior seniority in the um, civil service. And I would support that. What can I do? I mean, one thing I can do is, first of all, have conversations with different people, with black women, um, which I enjoy, I'm enjoying doing, and I, I've been doing it through this process, but also um, giving different groups um, opportunities to gain the confidence um, you know, to get to senior positions. When you say give them opportunity, are you somebody who, are you speaking to equal opportunity or are you speaking to something more positive, such as a positive discrimination? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm positive discrimination. I mean, I, I think in the UK, we don't really no. like the idea. Um, I know that in South Africa and maybe in American universities, it, it, it's people have gone down that route. I don't say never. I much prefer the idea of trying to give all people the resources so that they can compete for positions of, of influence and power. I mean, first of all, sorry, first of all, power is a distributive thing. So it's people can take action and influence things at all levels in an organization. Obviously, more senior people have in, in a more authority often or more formal power. Um, and therefore, we need to enable, we need to get rid of, um, if you like, nepotism. I think the civil service has a history of being a kind of meritocracy. However, if you look at if you look at it sort of traditionally, it's been the, you know, certain demographics, kind of white Oxbridge male. That is changing, not fast enough. People are frustrated. My sense is that there's certainly more emotional energy for a faster rate of 
change. But I don't think that goes as far right now as um, positive discrimination because there are, again, it goes back to this idea of basic natural rights. And there's a sense that, you know, if you've got two people of equal ability, then you would give it to the person who represents a group that's less well represented. But if somebody outperforms somebody, then um, and you, and you genuinely think somebody would be better in the role and develop more, then you you know you wouldn't discriminate against them positively. It's a really I'm doing a lot of speaking, so it's um, <laughs> that's fine. That's absolutely fine. That's what you're here for, so we can hear and share your ideas. So, are you against the idea of positive discrimination? In principle, I. I think it does sort of con it can conflict with natural justice, but I do I think there are cases where if if there are really bad systemic um, difficulties like like in um, South Africa I think um, you know when we move from apartheid there's a need to really you know if you want transformative um, change in a system then there may be case for um, positive discrimination. But I am, I mean, I think on an individual level, it can be unfair. You think in positive discrimination on the individual level is unfair? What do you think black people are suffering at the moment? Because there is positive discrimination. There's positive discrimination towards white people. And that's something that I always find quite interesting, that the idea of changing the equality, changing the bias the other way, is seen as unfair. But the fact that we have kept the bias this way, you just have to look at organisations, and I call them places with the Guinness effect. They're all white on top and they're black at the bottom. Very few black people represented in higher echelons, whether it's in an organisation, whether it's in the civil service. It's almost as if black people are not capable and we know that that is not true. But when you see it, it almost plays into the white stereotype that black people are less intelligent. And I wonder when we talk about equal opportunities, well, how can it be equal when you've started so far back? Yeah, and, no, and we speak I, to meritocracy. And I think, well, how can it be merit when the education system in the area is less? Not necessarily the number of children to classes, but the type of teachers, some schools, all they have are supply teachers. So there's no regularity. Some children, their parents are out to work in order to chase the UK dream. So the children are left more or less to bring themselves up. So where is the parenting, the pastoral care at home? So they're at a disadvantage. And as you go down the economic line, you'll find that there are more children from people of colour that are affected than white people. That's not to say that you don't get poor white people, but at least when you're poor and white, you turn up for a job. You're not thinking before you leave for that interview, will I get it because I'm black? You know, I don't disagree with what you're saying. certainly agree that organisations um, and university institutions are increasingly like a pint of Guinness. But, you know, how, how do you get that... Uh, change. I mean, I think I think we are having those discussions now in a way that we haven't had them before. Coming back to what King said, and I appreciate what you're saying, but in order for change to come, do you see or believe or or even understand that that has to come from the white liberal 
giving up authority, giving up space. It is changing. So if you look at, I don't know, our House of Commons or our House of Lords, it used to be um, run by white males. It's still biased towards white males, but the look and the feel of the place seems to change every um, election. And, well, they both should be representative of the people who... um, vote them in whether they have to be gender and race representative exactly one would hope that the political parties would put forward people for election um but i certainly wouldn't have quotas um you know it's up to the electorates to vote for who they want and um i wouldn't have quotas on um particular groups being in in the house of commons i think the the electoral process should select um and if 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 you know, the country wants to select more women than men or more men than women or um, a disproportionate amount of BAME people, then I think that's up to the the electorate. I mean, that's kind of a principle of democracy. But I do think there is, there is, there is a point about a negotiation of a transfer of power for... Um, so, for example, if you think about companies and boards of directors, um, I think it's very important that there's better representation and that inevitably will mean that um, pale, stale males will be standing down to enable different groups to step forward. Do you think that the pale male stale is ready to do that? Well, it depends. So it's very interesting. So there are conversations that happen in the workplace about Black Lives Matter. We can call it, I like to call it BLM, but it's 19... No, that's fine, BLM's good. Um, about BLM, and then the same people will go home, white people like me, to a place like Lewis, on a Sunday lunch, and they will sit around with white relatives, and the conversation about BLM will be very different, because when white people are together, or some white people together, um, they will feel more free to say what they really think, and what they really think, um, you know, or the, or the difference within the white community about, about this agenda. And I've been quite struck. I mean, this this goes um, to, to to the heart of the sort of political process and what's happening in America at the moment. But um, you know, first of all, you know, we you need to rec- we need to recognise that a very large proportion of Americans vote um, for um, populism, um, and this populism culture is very widespread. Um, so, if you like. If you and I hang out together in London, we might not experience this so much. But then when I come into rural Sussex, um, you know, I, 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 I face it, I have these conversations. So I hear people saying that BLM is rubbish, that they don't, you know, or have, refuse to watch the George, George Floyd video. Now, these people are not white supremacists. They're not people who consider themselves racists, but they're part of this and, they're, and they've got degrees. And they're people that I've hang, you know, would hang out with you know and I'm, i've been quite shocked but i'm just saying we're, we're quite polarized i mean not as polarized as in the united states but there's a lot of polarization uh, the conversations i hear around the lunch table on a sunday those people would not say them in the workplace because they know that they would you know they just wouldn't say say that because they would um you know they would be in trouble but they're quite happy to say them when they're safely you know within a family or a friends group which brings us very neatly back to King's idea on the white liberals and how they block power. And that is they like the sound, 
that they are on side until it comes to the doing of them being on side. It's very easy for me to blame the other white people and say, well, I'm, of course, not like them and they're different. And um, that's what every white liberal will say. I think if we break down liberalism, I think one of the problems of liberalism goes back to this point I said earlier about the rational and the irrational brain. So rationally, I might be a non-racist. In the old days, I'd have said, yeah, I'm colorblind. Race doesn't make any difference. But actually, underneath it, and I've done the test, you know, so, I, you know, the, you know that test and um, that Harvard test, how you, it, it's, it's an unconscious thing so you can't you you just respond to images and words um and you kind of get a racism score i'm not going to say what my racism score was but it was it certainly wasn't unbiased you know and we have to um ask ourselves and question ourselves about whether we're you know we make judgments about people all the time on an instinctive level and we do that all the time i remember tony ben said in the 90s he was asked whether he was a racist and he said yeah you know i, I constantly have to reflect on when I'm being um, racist or sexist or whatever else. And I think we, you know, we, we cannot help but um, make judgments um, instinctively, which are non-rational. And that's why I think liberalism, um, as sort of defined in the Enlightenment, has to be kind of revised a little bit to recognise the non-rational aspect of human behaviour and human decision-making. I did a talk around that area and the research, including papers like the Chronicle of Higher Education, they have debunked the implicit bias and the implicit association test. Researchers included one of the actual founders of the implicit association test found that the correlation between implicit bias and discriminatory behavior is, and I'm quoting now, slight. Of course, it was made popular by Hillary Clinton, and there's a huge industry hanging on to it. So it's making money for people. But the reality is, the test has been debunked. I don't accept that racial rescue lurks in the unconscious, especially when the bias has been explicit. I do think the answer lies in building bridges and conversations like these, amongst other things to use critical thinking faculties. And we choose not to because we sit in the position that is easiest, that plays into the prejudices, I believe, that we want to keep. Because we could easily challenge them. I challenge mine all the time. Mine, there's nothing super about me. And I think we choose not to challenge them. And I think this is the whole thing when it comes down to the words of King, that the thing that stops the black man from progressing is the white middle-class person who speaks one way but really doesn't want to cede authority and that's the heart of the conversation and I want to know how do we get more white people who are in the middling ground who have the authority to cede? Well I suppose there are two options aren't there there's one a violent option by revolution um, and the other option is through some sort of negotiation so I think it's good to talk you know, I, I suppose we have to try, you know, from my point of view, to my sons, in my life, I have to demonstrate to them, it's, it's very important I set a role model, that, you know, I haven't taken advantage career-wise to get to where I've got. Um, I have obviously benefited in some ways. You know, I got, I went to um, a good university and... Um, I had a private education, so I had a lot of advantage there. But with my own kids, you know, they've 
had a very different educational experience to me. And there's something that I do. So, it, sorry, there's one bit about conversation. So have these have have these conversations and 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 do my bit through voluntary organisations that you and I are a member of, but also. Um, in a funny way, um, I have a passion for sport and athletics, and athletics and running keeps me honest. Um, so, what does that mean? It means that you put yourself on the start line against other people who are different, you know, increasingly they're younger than me. Um, and, um, you know, you're only as good as your last race, and you really you give it your all, um, and it's an honest endeavor. Um, and you know results speak for themselves the, the clock doesn't lie um and it's a true um well it's a it's a meritocracy a, a, a park run if you like <laughs> there's a whole nother conversation about whether or not there is meritocracy in sport because even there i think black people have to work that much harder with less facilities and of course less money but let's park that one for when you return are we honestly without taking radical action going to get to the point where there is some form of transitioning of authority and recognition of black people in their fullness can we honestly get it by jaw 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 i'm not saying we're going to get it um quickly um and there will be um resistance so you know as i said when i have these conversations um with people i know um i can see how much um distrust and um, resistance there is to this agenda but and then the other alternative is well sod this um, had enough of this um, can't wait any longer I want revolutionary change and that is that is is always the sort of um, op op option um, but it seems to me that certainly in, in um, Western societies or European societies, there aren't enough people who are really in that group who want revolutionary change. So um, it's better to do it through um, negotiation, but it's going to be very difficult and it's going to take a long time because there are a lot of people who feel very threatened and uncomfortable by this, by this agenda. But the way to break through that is to, as human beings, we need to meet, we need to discuss, we need to talk, we need to hang out together. If we don't, if we separate, then um, fear and distrust just grows. And I know you can't speak for everybody, and I'm not asking you to do that, Shane, but I'm asking you to imagine, why would white people be frightened of an agenda that says, let's treat people like human beings, let's recognise black people as part of the human race? you won't get many white people who would overtly disagree with that. They would just say, well, we're different where we live. You know, we want to keep the place where we, where we live like it's always been. We notice difference, well, in colour, but also in culture, and we don't like that. I mean, that's what I hear all the time in rural, coastal communities, or I certainly hear um, people that I know defending that view they wouldn't they they would deny that they were racist what are white people scared of I suppose that's 
a question that I've never got to the bottom of. There's an irrational fear that the black people are going to kill the white. Black people are different from me, so they're going to, at some point, if there was a conflict, they're going to gang up on me. I don't know. I, I think, um, I mean, you know, you heard this in the in the um, Brexit referendum, how um, certain demographics of white people, um, but this a lot of this is just a narrative that's created by um, populists. Again, it, it's, it comes down to this identity um, politics about blaming um, in-crowd, out-crowd, and blaming uh, an easy-to-target group for, for difficulties in society. But I, I, I suppose there is, in the nature of politics, there's always a haggling over power. That, that is a, a kind of, um, how can we put it, it's a bare fact of the political process. So um, we have to devise processes where everybody can participate. The last bit of controversy, and I don't want to get in trouble with your wife, and you're a good-looking man. At any point in your life, has going out with a black woman been something you've thought about, somebody you've seen, somebody you've been attracted to, or has it been never on your agenda? Just blink to it. So I will say that, I mean, my three long-term partners, I've only had three long-term relationships, have all been white. One was Italian, which made a really dramatic 10-year divorce process. 10-year <laughs> divorce? Yeah, it was a, it was a marathon um, divorce. It was a marathon because there was a lot at stake. It was like what country and what culture were these children going to be brought up in? But I do remember being kind of in love with a black girl called Paulina Smith in Belize in 19, well, a long time ago, 30 <laughs> years ago. Um, her dad was um, the head engineer in a sugar factory and he had seven children. And um, there was Paula, Pamela and Pauline. Yeah, I was kind of really taken by Pauline, but she had a boyfriend, a another Belizean. Um, we went on a weekend break together, the three of us. I'll leave it there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so thank you for that. Let's move on to your passion, because I know you said that you loved trains and transport ever since you were a little boy. Now, I know that you were working on the controversial HS2 project. In my opinion, it's a vanity project. How can you guys even begin to justify cutting down the 250-year-old pear tree for a train that's going to go 20 minutes faster? Come on. Okay, that's great. Um, the pear tree. The, the pear tree, I think, is near Limington Spa. Or that's Henry right. Um, yeah, why didn't you go around the golf course? Why did you take the pear tree out? So deciding on the route for something like a new transport corridor is a really complicated process. So... And I've been involved with the project since its conception. So I remember sitting in a room in 2008 where we were trying to convince ourselves that high-speed rail was a really bad idea and we'd never build it in Britain. Um, and then we got a minister, a guy called Andrew Adonis, who came along and said, you civil servants, it's not your job to tell me why you shouldn't do something. You know, it's your job to come up with an answer to how we would justified building a high-speed railway i mean i think the reason for building hs2 is because it will be transformative for this country so 
traditionally all we've ever done is spent money on public in terms of promoting public transit it's traditionally all gone to transport for london and london sort of um, got a really good public transit network and the rest of the country has really suffered since victorian times and hs2 although we're building the first bit from london to birmingham is really about bringing the northern and midland cities much closer together so they have the sort of train services that you kind of expect in the southeast of england so to give you an example i think that's probably the best example at the moment how long do you think it would take to get from leeds to birmingham by train four hours five hours no it's not it's not it's not quite that bad but it's about two and a half hours and when it's a really when last were you on the train <laughs> um not for well, that's true well, we have, the demand for trains is pretty low in a pandemic um but with HS2, it'll be like 40 minutes. So it'll, it'll bring um, the sort of jobs market at Leeds and the jobs market at um, Birmingham much closer together. And it'll also, it'll, that'll happen for Nottingham, Derby, um, Manchester. So those, and, and then you can sort of add on hybrid, high-speed conventional services to get to other places like Stoke-on-Trent and Liverpool. So it's really good for the north of England. The north of England really wants HS2. The other problem is that... Um, you know, demand to get from London to other cities, there is a really high demand and capacity on the conventional rail services sort of pre-pandemic. All trains out of Houston were absolutely crammed. So we had to build something. You know, the choice was, do you want to build a new motorway? Takes up loads more space, knocks down, kills a lot more trees and causes a lot of pollution. Or do we um, increase rail capacity? And if you're going to increase rail capacity, um, the most effective way to do it as well as building a new line is to run at high speed because then you can get more trains up and down the pipe obviously when you do that there's bad stuff that happens so you go through woodlands and occasionally you take out something really emotive like was it england's oldest tree i can't remember second oldest pear tree second oldest pear tree which was something like it was like hundreds of years old so that's really sad you know the benefits of the scheme mean that there will be some things i mean also there'll be people who lose their homes so what do you do about that well you you can make it natural capital positive which is a new concept so previously when we built roads and transport networks we just killed stuff but now we replace it with more than that was there before and also, you know, you can create wildlife corridors, new wildlife corridors and new woodlands. I'm not saying instantly that taking out ancient woodlands when we have so few woodlands is ever a good thing. It's not. It's sad and it's a pity. And we should try and minimise doing that. And there may be places in nature where you say, like if you have a national park where you just don't do anything in fact i think in the chilterns it's mostly in a tunnel to avoid damage to nature but there, there is going to be damage so hs2 are duty bound to give more back than they take away so this damage that we're talking about just to contextualize it from my understanding is that for 20 minutes in terms of speed time we have taken out a tree that is 250 years old we have got basically a public checkbook that is blank allowing people to just write checks as they like for this train station that's going to go to just Birmingham and London I know there's a phase two for Manchester Nottingham and Sheffield which won't be ready until 2033 
that we are going to lose 350 unique habitats, 50 irreplaceable ancient woods, 30 river corridors, 24 sites of specific scientific interest, and hundreds of other of important areas. Surely, surely it is not worth it for a train that goes to 225 miles an hour. So when you put it like that, it's a brilliant bit of advocacy, but I would just like to, you know, I feel like I'm in court now. So that, that <laughs> was the case for the prosecution. <laughs> so the case for the defence would be that it isn't just 20 minutes to London. It, phase one is 20 minutes between London and Birmingham. Phase two, we will have almost an hour to Manchester faster, something like 45 minutes to Leeds faster. Far better connectivity between the Midlands and the North, and a 50% increase in overall capacity of the rail system. This is really important because as we move to a low carbon transport um, system, train as a form of mass transit, it's really important to invest in that to get the mode shift out of cars and also promote business investment in, in these northern and midland cities. So those are all the benefits. Now, you said that we were going to destroy SSSIs. We will touch a number of SSSIs. We'll touch a number of ancient woodlands. We won't be destroying... I mean, when those statistics are given, um, it says we'll destroy a whole woodland. Sometimes we will take a small part of a woodland out and we will put back native species like oak trees. And the idea there is that at the end of the project, 20 years' time, there will be more woodland there will be this high-speed rail corridor, but it will be um, blended in and landscaped with a net positive for both biodiversity and the number of trees. So we're going to kill trees that, that have lived, because these are living things. Plants are living things. Things that have lived for hundreds of years, we're going to kill them. So a handful of people, because the work pattern in this country is changing, more people are working closer to home, very few people do that great journey from the north to the south. Work is such now, more things are happening online. So a handful of people can be on the train to get to London 20 minutes faster. When the line is up and running, when is it in? So just to correct you on the um, opening time. So the restructure of the project means that the line to Birmingham will open, is aimed to open in 2029 um, and then on to Crewe, I think one or two years later. And then to Manchester, it will be sometime in the sort of early to mid 2030s. And then the eastern leg to Sheffield and Leeds um, won't be until 2040. Why? I mean... In terms of demand for travel, um, I agree with you that we can do a lot more online. But as you and I know, human beings really crave human interaction and connectivity and demand for travel. And the biggest increase in demand for travel isn't for business, it's for leisure travel and also for education. You know, big demand for travel, especially for rail travel, comes from students. And also just generally, our population is increasing. So our, for most of my <laughs> life... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. We're now around 66 million, and the projections that the population will be 75, 80 million. You made an so, excellent point because you said that people travel because we're social animals. So why rush them when they can sit on a train and save 20 minutes 
save all the forest and they can be talking to the person next to them. There is no good reason why we need to get faster and faster and faster. I think it was the BBC economics editor, Stephanie Flanders, who said, I found it quite hard to find an, an economist who thought it was a good idea. There is a kind of economic case, even if Stephanie Flanders, who's very clever, doesn't understand it, which is about enabling the northern and midland cities to act as a sort of counterbalance to London. And to do that, transport connectivity is really important and they really suffer from poor connectivity. Why can't we just put on a couple more trains? So we have been doing that we've, and we've made the trains longer but we might also want to reopen some lines that were um, closed in the 60s and try and get a shift because I think when people are travelling to cities, public space is much better used when we take cars out of urban areas. It frees up more space for social activity and it improves air quality, reduces noise, lots of other reasons as well. So rail is a really good bet for for a form of mass transit. Isn't there work going on, such as a new route from Milton Keynes to London via the East-West Railway line? Yeah, so there's the East-West Rail. You've really chosen the right bit of the department to come and speak to, because what we do is we do HS2, we do East-West Rail. So those are two, and, and we also talk about Crossrail too, as, as the kind of third project. Oh, and the Great Central into Malibu. There was talk about a kind of Great Central, but that's not so much on the agenda. But East-West Rail is, is an interesting one. There's loads of new housing going up in the kind of arc between Oxford, Milton Keynes and Cambridge. And all the road system will be absolutely, will be just generating huge amounts of traffic unless we create a public transit corridor. And that's what East-West Rail is East West Rail is all about. thing that sticks with me, and this is from an article that I read, the reality is that the vast majority of rail users are short distant travellers who will continue to suffer, crush our conditions, whilst HS2 sucks up all the rail investment cash for two decades, whilst a variety of targeted improvements, which could come into service long before HS2 is due to open, would deliver more benefits to more people for less money. So I don't think it's an either or, it's like... We want high-speed rail because we think um, it'll increase lots of capacity, but we also want to invest in conventional rail, um, providing better services to um, lots of places, not just London sucking in all the rail investment. And I think it's a really good thing. We've come to the final part, and I always get excited about this. We are going into the quick fire round. Is music important to you? Yes. One word answers, yes. Carry on. No, you could add another sentence if you want. I sung to my wife at my wedding, and that was a very important thing for me to do. A Nat King Cole version of Fly Me to the Moon, and the way he sings it is just so beautiful because we all know the chorus, but the first verse, nobody knows the words, although Nat King Cole uses it, so there's just beautiful words. The pause is because I'm waiting for the first verse. Poets often use many words to say a simple thing. It takes thoughts and time and something to make a poem thing. With music... So I've got the words a little bit wrong. With music and songs I've been playing for you, I've written a song. It's gone out of my head, the exact word. You always get the um, Frank Sinatra version, but the Nat King Cole version is much better. When did you music. first respect yourself? Crikey. 
I don't know. It's been a life journey, a life mission. As a as a as a uh, son of a divorced parents, it, it takes a long time. Perhaps when I run under two minutes for eight hundred, so I would have been twenty one at the time. What qualities do you look for in a partner? Compassion, which is a really interesting um, word. So it combines wisdom and passion, um, and that's what I look for in a partner. And also somebody who's basically a fan of me. Oscar Wilde will agree with you. What's the best thing about being an adult? Basically, you don't have to listen to your parents anymore. What's the best thing about being a man? It's a three, I, I, you know, it's embarrassing, but it's, yeah, sex. What's the hardest thing about being a man? Communicating with women. What's the most unexpected thing you found about being a man? That we have a feminine side that can be quite hard to find. Who are the men you most admire? Now, if you don't have a name, what are their characteristics? So I would admire Jimmy Alder, who was brought up in a Scottish slum. Um, I don't think he knew his parents. He was a bricky, and he became Commonwealth Marathon champion in uh, 1970. I admire Emmanuel Kant because he tried to um, use the power of reason to come up with a universal moral code. And I admire Joseph Conrad because I think he writes brilliant novels where there's always a kind of moral coward who is faced with a terrible dilemma and um, always makes a wrong decision and chickens out and then has to live with himself for the rest of his life. Do women need men? Uh, I think it depends. Not all women need men, but I think a lot of women do. Can a white person write a black character? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if a white person's been married to a black person, they will have um, a perspective. And anyway, it's fiction. So I think everyone has the right to do whatever they like. Are men just a little above women? Well, in some respects. So in some respects of physical performance and just in average height, they're above women. But in other respects, they're far inferior in terms of empathy, conversation, number of ability to have friendships. That's a massive generalisation, by the way. I'll take it. Where would a woman meet a man like you? On a train. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> no, but it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a high-speed train. It would be like on a cold winter's night in a rural platform that was empty. And, and there would probably be a tea room as well, like in um, Brief Encounter or whatever. I was thinking of Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> That's a totally different place. <laughs> there aren't any trains in Narnia, rather. Yes, when they were at the train station... Okay. I can't remember, can you? They were at the train station. Oh, they got to Narnia. Now, my last guest, Naomi, she said, if you could tell your 15-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Don't get married to um, somebody just because you really fancy them. Can you love two people romantically at the same time? Yes. Okay, let me put it another way. Can you have two romantic Eros-type loves at the same time? 
Well, it depends if you have a primary relationship and how you negotiate that relationship. So, you know, it depends how conventional you are, um, I guess. What is it? In principle, obviously, yeah, you can um, love many people at the same time, but um, I would have thought it becomes pretty complicated and um, depends on your predisposition to jealousy, which will always get in the way of multiple loving well, romantic relationships at the same time. What are two social justice causes that you support? Black Lives Matter, because it addresses um, inequality in our society. And I will say kind of Greenpeace in the sense of um, addressing the um, diminishing aspects of environmental degradation from climate change to um, water resources to biodiversity to... um, sustainable food production what is the one thing that takes your breath away strava links on a bicycle you that doesn't mean anything to you does it no it doesn't okay it's um it, it's just uh, strava is a, is basically every bit of road network or path network that you run or cycle on you can get your time recorded for that thing as a segment and then you can see how fast you are compared to everyone else who's ever done that segment um, and logged on to Strava so there are literally everywhere in the world thousands and thousands of times for every hill or bit of segment anywhere in the country only if you're a fitness loony would you be interested in any of this stuff okay I'm interested in that in fact I have a challenge for you a fundraiser for littleroad.org and it's okay. about doing is it lunges or press-ups Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you so people, right. Really annoying people on Facebook do those things and then video themselves and then share it on Facebook. Well, you can be really, really annoying and share it with your fans because you know, you know that we love you. And that's why I'm going to leave you with this question. Okay. What does love feel like? Love. So this is a really good. So there's, I think there's a hormonal aspect to it. So there's a kind of ostrogen sort of warm hugging feeling to it um but then there's also a sort of testosterone sort of male side to um love um, sort of physicality um and they're both really good thank you shane i have thoroughly enjoyed our time together it's a wrap remember you can catch all my broadcasts and never miss a show i'm on all the major podcast platforms just press the follow button above or below Be gentle with yourself. Poets often use many words To say a simple thing It takes thought and time and rhyme To make a poem sing With music and words I've been playing For you I have written a song To be sure that you'll know what I'm saying I'll translate as I go along Fly me to the moon And let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like 
on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, darling, kiss me. Fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love you. Song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I. 